So this morning, uh, we continue our study through the 1689 Confession by looking at chapter 23, which is entitled, Lawful Oaths and Vows. Um, And as we begin, I want to kind of look at this at a few different levels. I want to first just again mention very briefly the historical context uh, for this chapter. Um, And then I want to look at a series of passages that affirm the lawfulness of oaths. And from there, I want to look at Matthew 5, verses 33 through 37, and try to rightly explain that passage, because that text is often a barrier in people's minds regarding this issue of oaths. Um, And so I want to look at that after we do a couple of introductory things uh, to begin with. So first, the historical context uh, for this chapter. As we've mentioned numerous times uh, throughout our study here in the 1689, the writers of the Confession pulled a lot from the Westminster Confession of Faith. If you line those two documents up, you'll see many similarities. There's a few differences here and there, but the writers took a lot from the uh, Westminster Confession of Faith. And this topic of the lawfulness of oaths was written by the Westminster divines really to address the error of the Anabaptists who believed that Christians should not take oaths at all under any circumstance. Um, Now, the authors of the 1689 included this chapter as well, believing that it does have much value and to also affirm the lawfulness of oaths. If you read through the Westminster Confession, you see that the the Westminster Confession is much more uh, black and white on this issue of how they feel about those who wouldn't take oaths. The 1689 writers, um, they were a little bit softer. They had a little more compassion for the Anabaptists in in their writing of this, but they were as strong to affirm the lawfulness of oaths. So uh, that's kind of the historical backdrop to the writing of this chapter. Again, these, um, many of these chapters were written in the context to reaffirm what the Christian faith actually teaches, what we believe that it, it teaches. And this was, this was an issue that needed some addressing at that time. So I want to look now at some passages that regard the use of oaths. Um, Sam Waldron, in his exposition of the 1689 Confession, has a list of scriptural arguments as to why oaths are lawful. And I, I've, uh, I have these up on the PowerPoint for you. Um, If you want to flip your paper over and jot these down, you can feel free to do that. Um, But I just want to kind of walk through um, these things here. So, scriptural arguments for the lawfulness of oaths. Number one, first argument, is the command not to swear vainly or falsely in God's name assumes their lawfulness. Okay, Exodus 20, verse 7, the third commandment there. You shall not use the Lord your God's name in vain, or you shall not take the Lord your God's name in vain. Uh, That was in a context of making sure that when you did swear, that you swore truthfully, right? So this uh, command here assumes the lawfulness of oaths, that it's right to take oaths under certain uh, circumstances. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless, who takes his name in vain, okay? So that's, that's the first argument. Number two, the command to swear only in God's name assumes their lawfulness. A couple passages here. 
and I think I just have Deuteronomy 6.13 referenced, but in this passage it says, It is the Lord your God you shall fear, Him you shall serve, and by His name you shall swear. Okay? So again, what we're trying to do here is just to build that argument that it's right to take oaths under certain circumstances, as opposed to the Anabaptist who said no oaths at all at any time, uh, that's, that's wrong. And it was a misinterpretation of Matthew 5, which we'll look at here in a minute. Number three, one of the most compelling passages. The example of God himself indicates their lawfulness. Let's look at Hebrews 6, verses 13 through 17. Can I have somebody read that for us? For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. Okay, so we, we need to be very careful if we say that oath-taking is sinful. Because then we're, we've got a big problem here in, in Hebrews 6. If we're going to ever make a statement like that. God himself took an oath, which again is amazing, right? Because God doesn't need to confirm anything. He is a God of truth. He can't lie. He's, if, he's, if he's said it, if he's given a promise, that promise doesn't need any further confirmation. It doesn't need an oath placed on top of it. But God did so, according to this text to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose. So in other words, God condescended to take an oath in order to assure you of your faith in Jesus Christ. Right? What, what a kindness of God to condescend to our weakness and himself, since he had no one greater by whom to swear. Right? He swore by himself. And he, so the, uh, he takes an oath. Yes? So the, the oath itself is the surely I will bless you. That, 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 that's correct. That's correct. And you're going to see this. We're going to, good point. We're going to get to this in the New Testament when you have Jesus use, using phrases like, truly, truly, I say to you, or surely, surely, I say to you. You know, we, we are to think like, every word that Jesus speaks is truth, right? Why, why is he giving these statements of like, truly, truly, and surely, surely? And we'll get to that in a minute. So good, good point. Way to recognize that. Okay, number four here. The example of many Old Testament saints indicates their lawfulness. I, I don't have time to kind of go into all these. You can jot these down um, if you want to, and they're, they're scripture references. Um, but you have Abraham, Jacob, Joseph, Elijah, Nehemiah, Ezra, all of them taking oaths in some context um, for some for some purpose, for some confirmation of something. Um, so, is anybody writing that down? I'll leave it up here for a second if you are. I don't want to fly by and you're like, I only got Abraham. That was worthless. Okay. I'll leave that up there just for a sec so that you can, you can jot that down. Okay. Anybody else still need that slide? No? Okay. If you do, just see me. I'll send you the PowerPoint. Uh, number five, the law of Moses required oaths in certain situations. Okay, there was actually a requirement of that. 
And I've just cited one of those uh, texts there. You have Numbers 5, 19, also verse 21, 1 Kings 8, 31, Exodus 22, 11. And again, if I'm going too fast, just see me and I'll send this to you. Exodus 22, I've just kind of put it in its context here, verses 10 through 12, says, If a man gives to his neighbor a donkey or an ox or a sheep or any beast to keep safe, and it dies or is injured or is driven away without anyone seeing it, an oath by the Lord shall be between them both to see whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property. The owner shall accept the oath, and he shall not make restitution, but if it is stolen from him, he shall make restitution to its owner. So again, here is a situation that actually required an oath to be taken. So an oath by the Lord here in Exodus 22. Uh, number six here, the prophet's predictions indicate their lawfulness. Isaiah, it's on this in a couple of places here. Isaiah 45, verse 23, and chapter 65, verse 16. Verse 23, somebody want to read that? Isaiah 45. By myself I have sworn, for my mouth has gone out in righteousness, a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear in allegiance. Okay, so there's a proclamation, a, a prediction that was going to come to pass. The Lord speaking here, by myself I have sworn. So again, God takes an oath, puts himself under oath. It's going to happen. Now, one of the massive implications as we think about the New Testament, because some people could come at this and they can say, well, that's, that's all well and good, but you've quoted a bunch of Old Testament texts. So was there some type of abrogation that took place in the New Testament, especially in Matthew 5, where Jesus is going through the Sermon on the Mount? Um, well, we're going to see here that Christ's example himself indicates the lawfulness of oaths. In Matthew 26, verses 62 and six through 64, the scripture says this, And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? Now here's, but Jesus remained silent. So somebody might look at that and say, See, Jesus didn't speak. He didn't put himself. But the next <laughs> verse goes on to show us here. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you. That word adjure means to charge under oath. That's what adjure means, to charge under oath. So I charge you under oath to testify by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus answers. He willingly puts himself under that oath and he answers. You have said so, but I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. So Jesus on trial here, put under oath, and he answers under oath. And then lastly, Paul's example indicates their lawfulness. Um, a few different passages here that I want to look at. Romans 1, 9 and 10. Here's Paul. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayer. So again, Paul trying to reaffirm the church here in Rome, that I'm praying for you. I'm, I'm fervently praying for you. God is my witness. I call God to testify to the truthfulness of what I am saying here. That's oath language that he's using. 
uses it also in 2 Corinthians 1.23. He says this, But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Okay? So Paul uses that oath language. He willingly puts himself on trial, so to speak, to testify to the validity or the truthfulness of what it is that he has said. Okay? So... Those are eight scriptural arguments that Waldron lays out in his exposition of the 1689 that I think are really helpful for us to just have a frame of reference that oaths are lawful. They're, they're things that ought to be done. Now, again, we may, not, we, we may not struggle with that as much in our context, but in the context of the writers of the 1689 during the 17th century, that was a big, that was a big issue. If you got called into court or you were to testify in a trial of some type, do you go under oath, right? Is that lawful for you to do that? The Anabaptists were saying no, based on what Jesus says here in Matthew chapter 5. So go ahead and open to Matthew chapter 5. And let's look here at verses 33 through 37. Matthew 5, verses 33 through 37. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. Now, here's the the key verse that has caused much controversy in verse 34. But I say to you, don't take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great thing, and do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Now, very important, the analogy of Scripture, which means Scripture interprets Scripture. If you take just a single verse or even just a few verses and you do not look at the surrounding context or you don't look at the totality of what Scripture says, you can come up with wrong interpretations, as I believe the Anabaptists did. As we've looked throughout all those, the reason I wanted to start with those scriptural arguments is so that you have a frame of reference to be thinking through as you come to a passage like this that can potentially trip you up. Hopefully what we've looked at in both the Old Testament and the New Testament will cause us to think more deeply and contextually about what Jesus is saying in that passage. Now, if you're familiar with the Sermon on the Mount, you may remember that what Jesus is seeking to do in the Sermon on the Mount is to correct the perversion of God's law that the Pharisees had brought upon it. And that's exactly what he's doing in this section. William Hendrickson, uh, a commentator, is really helpful in this section. I'm going to read a portion of of his commentary here, actually, that Waldron references. And Hendrickson says this, It is evident from the words of Jesus in Matthew 5, 34 through 36, that the traditionalists had shifted the emphasis 
so that the Pentateuch passages now began to read as follows. And, and listen to this. Leviticus 19.12, and Hendrickson's point again here is they've switched the emphasis. You shall not swear by the name falsely. Okay, by the name of God. Numbers 30, verse 2. When a man makes a vow to Jehovah or swears an oath, he shall not break his word. When you shall make a vow to Jehovah your God, you shall not be slack to pay it. Okay, that's Deuteronomy 23, verse 21. So the summary there is, you shall not break your oath, but shall keep the oaths you have sworn to the Lord. Okay, that's, that's key in understanding what Jesus is getting at here. Hendrickson goes on and he says, in other words, in the thinking of scribes and Pharisees and their forerunners, an oath sworn to the Lord must be kept. On the contrary, an oath in connection with which the name of the Lord was not expressly mentioned was of lesser significance. One did not need to be quite so conscientious about keeping it. And so in daily conversations, oaths began to multiply by heaven and by the earth and by Jerusalem. And according to Matthew 23, verses 16 and 18, even by the temple and by the altar. In order to make an impression, a person might utter such an oath, talking big and dispensing enormous promises. If the affirmation which he had made was a lie or if the promise was never even meant to be kept, that was not so bad so long as he had not sworn to the Lord. And that's what Jesus is addressing here specifically. When he talks about this, don't swear by heaven, don't swear by Jerusalem, and so on and so forth, right? So the Pharisees were very slick with their words and their interpretations, not only for themselves, but they were also teaching people that this was okay. And as Jesus has done in the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, he's correcting the errors of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law and helping the people to see that this is not how things ought to be done. So, what Jesus appears to be doing here is forbidding all the vain, purposeless use of indirect words or expressions that the Pharisees were substituting and teaching the people to substitute for God's name in order to have a facade of honesty while leaving themselves an out to be dishonest and unfaithful to their promises, right? So if they didn't come through on that, well, it wasn't an oath sworn to the Lord. It was an oath sworn to heaven or Jerusalem, right? So it sounded lofty, but it didn't carry the same weight. So they were giving themselves an out in that regard. Hendrickson concludes here and he says, what we have here in Matthew 5, 33 through 37 is the condemnation of the flippant, profane, uncalled for, and often hypocritical oath used in order to make an impression. Over against that evil, Jesus commands simple truthfulness in thought, word, and deed. So I think that's a helpful explanation as you look at the totality of Scripture to understand what Jesus is getting at in that uh, paragraph there. Now, with that, we can actually get into chapter 23. Okay? So I wanted to kind of set the context there so we understand what this looks like as we, as we enter in. And that was actually the bulk of the, the lesson. This is actually kind of, kind of quick and simple. 
Um, so let's, let's take a look here at this. Can somebody read paragraph one for us in chapter 23? Okay, good. So, again, here, here's, here's a conflict, right? So think about this. In our context, it's still a conflict. You're called to testify, let's say, in a court. You realize this is a court of men and that, you know, crazy things happen in different courts, especially if you, you go in other places in the world and bribery systems are set up and you know this is not going to be a fair trial in any regard. And you're called to testify in that context. There's perhaps a revulsion in your heart that says, I don't even want to go into that pagan court and, and testify uh, in such a, a context. Um, but the writers of the confession were showing that, listen, God has instituted the government. If you're not being asked to do anything simple and you're called to testify, you have an obligation to do so, to stand in that place. God has ordained that the government, you are to walk in there and you are to give that uh, testimony. Uh, that, they are, that they are looking for, and not be persuaded in any other way other than the truthfulness of what you know, which they're going to kind of get into. But notice how the confession starts here. A lawful oath is an element of religious worship. Now, let's think about that for a second. If you're called to testify, let's say in court, about something that you witnessed, how is that taking the stand, do you think, worship? to God. Do you think about it in that context? Right? That you're called to testify in that court. This is an act of worship as is all of life, right? They're broadening the, the writers here are broadening that out to show that you're you're about to worship God as you go and take that stand. How is that so? Let's talk about that for a second. That, that's interesting. I think mean, it sounds just like you're looking at in Matthew 5. Yep. Yes. So ultimately, you're guessing, guessing, you're guessing, you're guessing, you're guessing. Yeah. Exactly. The same idea, you got it. Good. Yeah, very good. You recognize that I, I stand before men who are fallible and they don't know everything. So maybe I can kind of paint this picture a little bit differently and maybe it'll be more favorable for the, uh, the person who's on trial. But what the writers are getting at here is you need to be reminded uh, whatever men may or may not know, you stand on that, you, you take that stand before God, the ever-present, all-knowing God who is righteous in all his ways, true in all his words, just in all his acts, and he is the one who searches the hearts of men. So it really was just this change of mindset again to not be persuaded by the looks of men, by the bribery of men. Take that stand as you have an audience of one, one to whom you will give an account and to God alone. So you can, you can sense if you ever do get called to testify, I hope that that kind of shapes your heart as you think about yourself going to testify in, in a court of law. This is an element of religious person, uh, uh, worship, and I am swearing in truth, righteousness, and judgment, and I solemnly call God to witness 
against me that what I'm about to testify is in truth, right? Man, that changes the game when you're just thinking about men, like maybe I can get around this or something like that. No, there's an all-seeing God, and, and he knows all things. Norm. Yes. Yeah, I would, I would say that you do it. Yeah, because the Bible is testifying of the God you serve. And so you should have no qualms of conscience in your own mind. You recognize that the government that you're in has been ordained by God. As long as they're not asking you to do something that is against the word of God, you should be able to swear in truthfulness that this is... Um, my, my speech is as true as this word that I place my hand on. God is my witness. Yes? In Psalm 15. Yep. Where he's talking about the, the blessed man that does these things. He says, he who swears, verse 4, he who swears yeah. to his own hurt yeah. and does not change. Yes. Yes. So that regardless of the consequence yes. of what you testify... Yes. That's right. Amen. Amen. You have to be willing to know that this is before God, whatever the consequences may be. The most important thing is that I testify rightly and truthfully before the Lord. So, great, great passage to bring out there. Norm. So, in a way, it's almost as if saying, like, I put my hand on the Bible and let the Bible go through me and then speak out. There you go. Yes. Yeah. circles I came from, yeah. they say, no, you're not supposed to do that because you're supposed to speak yes and no, but I like yeah. the approach that you're like, no, no. Yeah. perspective. Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Good. And, and uh, I don't know at what point you came in, but earlier I just kind of laid out a scriptural argument for the lawfulness of oaths where you see God, and specifically Hebrews 6, where God himself takes an oath. Uh, that, that's powerful. When, when we think about that, so. Um, okay, good, good comments there. Let's take a look here at paragraph two. If I can have somebody read that for us. So really, really helpful uh, portion there. Again, you'll see on the handout there, this is where the writer's footnote, Matthew 5, that we just looked at, that you are to swear by the name of God alone and only with the utmost holy fear and reverence. So again, this is the section where Jesus was correcting the false teaching and misinterpretation of the scriptures that the Pharisees were guilty of. It's, it's wrong to swear by anything other than the name of God alone. And, and really, this makes complete sense as we think about what the Bible teaches regarding who we are, right? Out of all creation, we alone have been made in the image of God and we're called to reflect him in all that we do, right? In our words and our works, 
and, and all those things. And as Christians, those have, who have been redeemed and are being renewed into his image, we reflect him. One of the ways we reflect him is with our integrity, right? With the honesty with which we speak and how we live. And to do so, to do otherwise, is to misrepresent God. We're, we're telling a lie about who God is when we ourselves swear falsely or, or lie because we're made in his image and we're reflecting him. And as those who have been redeemed especially, we're now empowered by the Holy Spirit to rightly reflect him uh, in a way that is honoring to him. Now, the second half of this paragraph is important for us to consider. It says here that in weighty and significant matters, an oath is authorized by the word of God to confirm truth and end all conflict. And we saw that earlier when we looked back at Hebrews 6. Let me just back up to that slide there, Hebrews 6. Somewhere in here. There we go. Um, for Notice about halfway down. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. That's the purpose of an oath. It's for confirmation, that the things that I'm saying are trustworthy, right, are, are true. Um, and I mentioned this. What, what was your name? I'm sorry. Yeah, my name's Rob. Rob, thank you. Uh, I just, what, what we were talking about earlier, Rob, when you mentioned the surely uh, in this passage, surely I will bless you, and I made a reference to what Jesus says there, and this is the point where I'm kind of getting to that. Um, Jesus has that same type of mentality when he uses the phrase, truly, truly, I say to you. Um, again, did you ever think about why Jesus would say that? Everything that he says is true, so why use this expression? Well, while everything that Jesus spoke was truth, not everything carried the same weight in all that he said. There were certain things that he wanted a clearer understanding to grab our attention more on certain, on certain matters. And so he uses this phrase, truly, truly. He was calling our attention to the weightiness of the statement that he was about to say. That's oath-like language that Jesus is using there. Yes, Rob? I take it you're Desmond? I'm not. I'm Ron. That's Desmond back there. <laughs> okay. So, uh, um, can you explain a little bit about the whole idea of perjury in terms of oath and oaths? Because it seems to me that what Jesus is saying is it's not just what we say. Yes. But we're actually sort of we're sort of living out the oath. And if yep. we're not living according to our our Christ given conscience, then we're actually perjuring ourselves yeah. in our life. You're so it's not just a matter of words, it's about yes. it's kind of like Psalm one oh one says yep. I will want an integrity in my own house. That's right. When no one's watching Yes. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great point. Uh, a phrase that I used earlier was, as we reflect God, he's not only a God who speaks truth, but he's just in all his ways and all that he does. So as Christians who bear the name of God, not only our words, but our works are to be truthful and righteous in all that we do. Now, we don't always do that, right? Um, we fall short of that. But certainly, we, when we think about perjury, we don't want to think about it just in the context of our words. We want to think about it in the totality of our lives. That our lives, and I think the scripture back this up, backs this up, 
is that our words and works are to go hand in hand. And that was one of the things with the Pharisees, right? That's what Jesus was indicting them for. He says, listen to what they're saying as they speak the law of Moses, but don't practice what they're doing, right? Because their words and their works are at odds with each other. They're, they're hypocritical in that sense. So as those who have been redeemed, hopefully more and more, those words and works are going hand in hand. That our words that are being expressed are being, uh, that our lives are adorning those words, our profession, our profession of faith. So absolutely, that's, that's a great point, Rob. We don't want to think about perjury just in our speech, but also in our actions, that all of that would be a truth about who God is. Yeah, good, good point. Um, okay, so going on here, as the confession states, when it comes to weighty and significant matters, an oath may be necessary and right. Uh, so that's something that we want to take into consideration. Okay, let's move on to paragraph three here, if somebody can read that for us. Whoever takes an oath authorized by the word of God should consider with due gravity the seriousness of such a weighty act to affirm nothing in it except what one knows to be true. For the Lord is provoked by ill-advised, false, and empty oaths, and because of them this land mourns. Very good, thank you. And that last phrase there, and because of them this land mourns, taken from Jeremiah 23.10. What's interesting here is the literal rendering of the third commandment um, is really helpful to kind of shed some light on this. It, literal, the, the literal rendering of it is, you shall not take the name of thy God in that which is false. Okay? That is to confirm an untruth. We looked at examples of this earlier, but again, Jesus in Matthew 26, when upon oath, uh, taking an oath that was common among the Jews, he didn't hesitate to answer in response to that when the uh, high priest said, I adjure you by the living God. Uh, Jesus didn't remain silent in that situation. He spoke up. Um, again, Paul on various occasions addressed his hearers with phrases like, for God is my witness, I call God to witness against me, and so on. So again, we see here that the taking of an oath is for the purpose of affirming only what one knows to be true. Okay, that's, that's the main issue there is only what one knows to be true, right? We don't want to speculate. We don't want to, th- I think this is what is true, right? It's to speak to what we know, the knowledge that we have of, of what is true. And to do so otherwise, as the confession says here, is to invite divine displeasure. For the Lord is provoked by falsehood. Uh, Proverbs talks about that. The six things that the Lord hates. One of those is falsehood, a, a lying tongue a tongue, deceitful speech. Um, And so how that should land on us, I think, is it should cause us to be very careful both in our speech and in how we live before others. When we understand the gravity of what God has called us to be as his image bearers, as his truth tellers and truth displayers, to a world that is around us. So we do so, we enter into these things with the due gravity or the gravity that is necessary when we consider the one before whom we testify. 
Okay, let's look at uh, number four here, which is, uh, if you look at number four in the Westminster Confession, it's a lot longer than this, and the Baptist writers just kind of summarized it in one sentence. It's like, we can take that, let's just put it into one sentence here. It says this, number four, an oath is to be expressed in the plain and ordinary meaning of the words without any ambiguity or mental reservation. The confession uh, cites here Psalm 24, 4, and I'll just read, I'll put up here verses 3 and 4 in Psalm 24, and if somebody can read that for us. Okay, so that, that last part of that there does not swear deceitfully with any type of deception or anything. You know, maybe sometimes you've seen movies, as Norm referenced earlier, where somebody has one hand on the Bible in the courtroom, the other hand behind their back with their fingers crossed, right? That type of mentality. Like, um, um, there's some type of deception that is going to take, take place there. Um, and so, again, this, this oath is showing us that plainness of speech is essential so that truth can come forth with clarity. You don't want there to be any ambiguity in, in how we speak. Um, you know, this is helpful not only as we think about oaths, but just in our daily conversations, right? It really causes you to, to think through, I want to be truthful in all that I say. I don't want there to be that deception or ambiguity where I'm kind of leaving myself and out, or maybe I'm not addressing something that I should because it may... Uh, cause dissension of some type. Um, so again, they're, they're trying to bring this, this clarity here, this plainness of speech. Again, this was the error of the Pharisees who were very slick with their words in order to deceive and to give themselves opportunities to not fulfill oaths that they had taken. Um, the people of God are to be marked with the integrity of speech, right? Right? Put falsehood far from me, the scripture says. That needs to be done away with. And again, the mindset here should be that we are representatives of God. We're image bearers of God. We're we're representing a God who does not lie, who is truthful in all his ways. There's no deception uh, in him. And so it it should cause us to just get on our face and plead with God to give us strength through the power of the Holy Spirit to be that type of that type of people, okay? All right, let's look lastly here at number five. Somebody want to read paragraph five for us? Okay, good. So, paragraph switches now to, this paragraph switches to address the issue of vows, oaths and vows, and I'll talk about here in just a minute what's the difference between those two. Waldron has a really helpful explanation on that. Uh, But you can see here that a main concern for the authors of the confession was the sinful practices of the Roman Catholic Church, 
and the false spirituality that they were ensnared by. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church taught and still teaches that by adhering to these monastical vows, one will be drawn ever closer to the Lord and will be elevated to reach a higher perfection. Um, again, the writers of the Confession saw right through this on the basis of Scripture to show that these things in no way in and of themselves cause a person to reach a higher perfection in this life. In fact, it's, what they're addressing here is much like what Paul addressed in Colossians uh, chapter 2 when he said, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Right? All of those things are worthless. Okay? All those type of, of vows that are, are made. But back to the beginning of this paragraph here, it's very similar in language that an oath or a vow must not be made to any creature but to God alone, and vows should be made and performed with the most conscientious care and faithfulness. So very, very similar here. Now, Waldron has an excellent kind of uh, description about this, so I want to read what he says about oaths and vows. And he says, in them, you see their similarity. Like when you read through paragraph 5 and you read what, he's, uh, what the writer said about oaths, you see their similarity in meaning. Both are solemn promises. Both are divinely sanctioned. Thus, much of what was said before applies to vows as well. They ought to be made religiously and kept faithfully. What then is the difference between an oath and a vow? And this, I thought this was really helpful. Vows are solemn promises made to the Lord. Oaths are solemn promises made before the Lord, but to men. Okay? The purpose of the oath is confirmation. The purpose of the vow is commitment. Okay? So let me read that again, because I thought it was really helpful. Vows are solemn promises made to the Lord. Oaths are solemn promises made before the Lord, but to men. The purpose of the oath is confirmation, confirming the words that you're, you have spoken or are about to speak. The purpose of the vow is commitment, what one is going to, one is going to do. So I think that's a helpful um, explanation in the difference between uh, those, two, those two things. So that is what I have for us this morning. Hopefully that was helpful to kind of think through the lawfulness of oaths and, and vows, and uh, we'll kind of guide your understanding and maybe promote further study on this, uh, on this topic. I, I found it to be extremely helpful um, in, working, in working through it. So, All right, Any, uh, just a reminder, if you have questions, we are continuing to collect questions. If anything from today you have questions about or anything that we've covered thus far, in our study through the 1689, that little green box in the back has a few index cards in it. Feel free to write your questions on that. Leave it in the box, and we'll be doing a Q&A uh, the last Sunday of August to address some of the questions that you guys have asked up to this point. Okay? Well, let me pray for us as we, as we close. Father, we thank you again for this opportunity to, to study your word and to look at this issue of oaths and, and vows up. Uh, Father, a topic probably that we don't give much thought to, um, but thank you for the truthfulness of your word here, and thank you for the opportunity that we've had to think through 
the importance of both our words and our works in rightly displaying who you are as we have been made image bearers of God, not only naturally, but even more so through Christ who is renewing us into that image. So we thank you for that. I pray that we will be found faithful, that we would remember that we're always, uh, we're before your face all the time, Lord, that, that our testimony um, before men is ultimately a testimony before you. So help us to be truthful uh, in all of our ways, that you would be honored in us and through us. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.